I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in our annual Advent series, The Long Winter Breaks 2021. Years ago, I got to take a trip to Israel, which is a funny thing. I've talked about it a few times. I was invited to join this tour group. This is not uh, false modesty or anything, but I think it was by accident um, it was like a, a bus full of megachurch pastors and influencers. I'm neither of those things, but I think someone might have thought I was, and I got invited to join this group, and I wasn't about to turn down a free trip to Israel, so I didn't bother telling anyone that I had no influence or megachurch at my disposal, and I was just, you know, answered the questions like, yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, so I, you know, I laid low, kept my nose clean, and I had me a good time in Israel with these influencers. Uh, them, you know, they tried to make it not fun, but I still had a good time. And one afternoon, our tour bus was riding along some Jerusalem highway when our Israeli uh, tour guide called our attention out the window to this. I believe we have a photo. This is the Valley of Hinnom, which is also known as Gehenna. And he said, hey, if you look out the window, you'll see Gehenna as we go by. I dropped the book I was reading and pressed my face to the glass. After all, how often do you get to see hell itself from the comfortable seat of a tourist bus? The actual physical valley of Hinnom, which is still right there, you can drive by it, or Gehenna, uh, was at one point a place where horrific child sacrifices were carried out, and then much later it became like a place where garbage was burned and where lepers and outcasts were sent far away from the community of God's people. Thus, in Jewish tradition and rabbinic literature, Gehenna became both a literal and figurative symbol of fire and burning and evil and wickedness and being cast out of the community. And Jesus himself, uh, in the rabbinic tradition, picked up on the Gehenna symbolism and he used it to describe the ultimate destiny for those who reject the love and salvation of God, and are cast out of His kingdom to be destroyed forever in what the New Testament calls the second death. In fact, Gehenna, the proper noun, is mentioned more than a dozen times throughout the New Testament, and many of those mentions our Bibles translate the word not as Gehenna, but as hell. The reason being that Jesus wasn't referring to the literal valley of Hinnom when he warned, for example, quote, it is better to lose part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. He was talking about the fate of the wicked, which in Christian theology we refer to not as Gehenna, but as hell. So your translators are kind of doing some contextual work for you. And maybe some people will read that or learn that or look at the footnotes and think, huh, that's odd. Jesus used something tactile, something familiar to his audience to symbolically represent the horror of eternal separation from God, of eternal destruction in the language of the New Testament. But we do this kind of thing all the time. World War II was hell, historians often say. The extermination camps of Poland, the battlefields of the Pacific were hell. The sweltering jungles of Vietnam were hell. The dry deserts of Iraq were hell. Whenever these places became blood-soaked battlefields, incubators for murder and trauma and PTSD and suicide, brutality, cycles of violence upon violence echoing out over generations, we often say it was hell. I read about something that happened in 2013 when a kidnapping victim spoke in court to their abductor that kept them in prison for more than a decade and said, I, and, said and I quote, I spent 11 years in hell 
Now, she said to her abductor, your hell is just beginning. The abductor himself, we learned throughout the trial, had been abused as a child and had persisted in the cycle of evil until he was caught and he ended his own life in prison. Hell upon hell. These descriptions of war as hell, prison as hell, life with an abuser as hell, all of them are, in a certain sense, theologically accurate. Like Jesus, when I say hell, I am not referring to some fiery dungeon furnished with craggy stone formations and oozing lava, prowled by horned imps in red pajamas, forever soundtracked by wailing souls in agony and, you know, the heavy metal records that so worried parents in the 1980s. You can find places like that in Renaissance-era paintings. In fact, a whole wing of the Louvre is filled with them. You can find them in your Dungeons & Dragons campaign, but they're not actually in the Bible. In fact, weirdly, the pop culture imagination has more specific things to say about hell than the Bible does. And so the pop culture imagination paints its pictures using medieval art, and Dante's Inferno, we think, is one of the bigger influences on the pop culture's understanding of hell, rather than the scriptures. And to be sure, Jesus and the biblical authors do talk about the fate of those who, of their own volition, knowingly reject and deny and denounce the kingship of Jesus, that they, in their choosing other than Jesus, so choose other than his eternal kingdom. And we call that choice, a choice with eternal consequences, hell. And then there's all sorts of theological bickering about the specifics of hell, some of it very valid, some of it decidedly less so. But I would argue that to understand hell only in terms of something that happens on the other side of death and judgment is too narrow a paradigm. We make the same mistake with what is often called heaven, so much so that I personally don't actually use the word heaven to describe what happens to disciples of Jesus after we die. I would argue that the New Testament authors don't either. Heaven is, in the New Testament, sometimes just the sky, the heavens. Other times, it's a word that describes God's space or where God the Father is. But the great and glorious fate of the cosmos, however, the biblical authors call resurrection or the age to come, or my personal favorite, the renewal of all things. The New Testament authors understood the kingdom of heaven as something that is somehow both now and not yet. The idea is that Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom, and we can see glimpses of it in the here and now in big things like children being adopted, or when the foster care system works, or in racial reconciliation, or in the pushing back of poverty and sickness and suffering. These moments of goodness when we can say God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom of God now. But it's also in the little things, things that seem to surround me personally at Christmas time, watching movies with my kids, traditions with friends, sitting with my wife on our couch at night in the soft glow of our Christmas tree. For me, these are glimpses of the beauty and glory of the kingdom of God. And the unfortunate dichotomy of our broken world is that hell works the same way. In lots of ways, the world itself is full of hell. I've heard hell incorrectly described as the absence of good. What a ridiculous understatement. Reality TV is the absence of good. SoundCloud rappers (laughs) are the absence of good. Hell is much more than good gone missing. 
And if the kingdom of God is any place or person or moment in which God's good will and reign are being realized in the world, then hell can be any moment, event, or time, or place in which total opposition, total defiance of God's will is being carried out and accomplished. We call this the dominion of darkness. And I've been going on about the inherent awfulness of humanity throughout Advent. But even so, I do not believe personally in the doctrine of total depravity. You see, according to the doctrine of total depravity, humans are inherently awful, yes, but that's all they are, inherently and fundamentally incapable of any good whatsoever. One professor I had described the view by saying, it's not just that we're broken and corrupt. We are, and this is his, these are his words, sewage. We are below sewage, vile refuse. And yet, as firm a believer as I am in the inherent awfulness of human beings, I believe that the Bible does present the occasional exception to human awfulness. The scriptures argue that human beings are broken, corrupted, but we're made in God's image, and we are capable of good things. So I don't believe in total depravity, but I do believe in depravity. The closest I've been to affirming total depravity in recent memory was just last week. Uh, We took our kids to see the mall Santa, and uh, we were waiting in the line of the common folk, the little people, if you will. You see, there's this like VIP line that runs uh, parallel to the common folk line. So if you pay extra money, you can skip ahead of the common folk. You know, it's like first class for seeing Santa. So, uh, you know, there we are. We eventually made it to the front of the common folk line, just feet from the mall Santa. But we were being bypassed over and over and over again because the VIPs kept showing up with their dogs. No children. In fact, The dog owners didn't even pose for these pictures. Just the terrified dogs who didn't want to be there and were like flinching away from Santa and everyone's like, okay, squeak, 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 look, here you go, dog. And for a moment, I was pretty close to affirming total depravity. I'll admit to you guys, I sinned in my heart against people and dogs. But I repented. I repented. We were fine. Everyone got their pictures, including the dogs. Uh... (laughs) I realize I lost half of you guys with that story. That's fine with me. This is, a, this is my honesty and transparency. I'll be out there on Christmas morning, you know, holding hands around a tree with a bunch of dog owners singing the Bahu Doris and all that stuff. <laughs> so I don't believe in total depravity, but I do believe in depravity. Because even though the Bible argues that we are made in God's image and capable of good things, it also paints a pretty dim view of humanity on the whole, that we are by nature selfish and destructive. And the Bible uses language to describe this predicament that sort of alternates between soft and straightforward, saying that we all miss the mark. We all fall short of God's ideal. This is from Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's kind of the uh, soft, straightforward version. And then we go all the way to the crass, outrageous version. For example, my Bible translates Isaiah 64, 6 like this. All of us have become like, like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. But this translation is actually prudish, and I would go as far as to argue a bit dishonest. Literally, the, te- the text says that even our best attempts at righteousness, righteousness are like used menstrual rags. Sin falls short, and sin is also crass and outrageous. Evil is like that, meaning evil is evil, 
but it also exists on a kind of spectrum. All of us have at times indulged that base, selfish desire within us, and these offenses often seem small. A snarky comment, a short temper, gossip, dishonesty, sinning in your heart against people and dogs in line to see Santa. Other times, sin is so egregious that it outright dismantles our lives and the lives of other people. And in it all, egregious evil or seemingly minor infractions, we are all contributing to the dominion of darkness that permeates our broken world. Many of us don't like to think of it that way because we think of our infractions as slight. But as the popular saying with many variations goes, no single raindrop ever feels responsible for the flood. And if we can't understand this, if we can't allow that reality to penetrate and even grieve our hearts, then we will not understand the beauty of Christmas. In her book on Advent that inspired this series, really, Fleming Rutledge writes this, Here is the Advent theme of the link between this life and the life to come, the link that will finally and decisively be made in the day of judgment. Radical evil will have no status in the last day. Until that day comes... We must believe in the realm of wickedness. We must believe in hell because there is no other way to take seriously the nature and scale of evil in the world. We must believe in hell because there is no other way to do justice to the victims of darkness. We must believe in hell because without it, Christian faith is sentimental and evasive, unable to stand up to reality in this world. Without an unflinching understanding of the radical nature of evil, Christian faith would be nothing but a suburban bedtime story. It's interesting to me that God's promise of redemption comes so early in the Bible story. You get this kind of strange messianic promise in Genesis 3. That's right at the beginning of the story. The offspring of the woman will crush the snake's head, the snake will strike his heel, all that right in the beginning. And then come the covenants. And a covenant is when God extends a promise and faithfulness for his people, and he asks of them faithful commitment in return. So the first is with Noah, that despite the inevitability of human evil and chaos, God would not destroy the world. God promises faithfulness knowing that humanity will be faithless. And then comes the covenant with Abram. God promises him a future, a family throughout or through his family, every family on earth is somehow going to be blessed. Then comes the covenant with Israel, guidelines for life with God in order that Israel might represent God to the world. Then the covenant with David, lead Israel in obeying the Torah. One day a descendant of David will come to rule and extend God's kingdom of peace and goodness all over the nations. And one by one in the story, the covenants are all broken. Not by God, of course, but by his covenant partners. Israel practices injustice, follows after other gods, fails to keep Torah, fails to represent God's unique goodness to the world. But the weird thing is that even when Israel suffers the consequences of her sins, even when she is in exile, suffering, even when their home is destroyed and God's presence literally leaves the temple, even when they are oppressed by pagans and Gentiles, throughout the story they constantly return to God's promise. There's a kind of willful obstinance on display in Israel's resilient hope across years that became decades, that became centuries. And don't get me wrong, things get really bleak if you read the story. Unlike what passes for Christian art today, the Bible's authors have no qualms about depicting raw emotion and rage and despair. 
But it's as if they continue to believe that despite their spectacular failings and with every reason not to do it, God will still uphold His end of the covenant. So they go on hoping and believing. And it wasn't as if they were like waiting comfortably, tucked away in American suburbia, sipping coffee, zoning out on smartphones, waiting for the renewal of all things. Waiting for Israel was misery. As a result of generations of sinful foolishness, Israel arrived on several occasions on the precipice of complete hopelessness, places so bleak, so far removed from the promise of redemption that it could have become for them the thing of scorn, dismissed as wishful thinking in the face of bitter reality. As God's presence abandoned the temple, as the Assyrians, the Babylonians raided, or the Babylonians raided their city, brutalized their family and their children, burned their places of worship, as their homes were flooded with blood and violence, engulfed in flames, when Israel's sin had become so persistent and so profound, her worship of other gods, her acts of injustice and idolatry, forgetting the poor, her breaking of covenant, her betrayal of the God who loved and rescued them from slavery, when Israel had contributed to and stewarded hell on earth, and the consequence of her wickedness became for them a new kind of hell on earth, in the middle of all this somehow Israel sang, give praise to Yahweh, proclaim His name, Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Look to Yahweh in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. With every reason in the world not to hope, she sang, he remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. For the people of God, in spite of sin and failure and betrayal and hell on earth, hell of their own making and hell imposed on them, God's promise was for His people trustworthy. And more than that, God's promise is inevitable. Things are, in many ways, very different for us now. But one thing remains constant, and that is the waiting Unlike ancient Israel, we have beheld in our hearts the arrival of the Messiah. We know God's promise came to bear in His inaugurated kingdom through Jesus, but we are still waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, and that is the renewal of all things. In his book on Advent, David Mathis writes this, It's good for us, though, to rehearse in Advent the anticipation of God's ancient people to renew our appreciation of what we now have in Christ. As we wait, we replace centuries of longing and yearning that preceded the coming of Christ, and in doing so, our joy in and gratitude for what we have in Christ deepens and becomes richer and sweeter. And we too live with longing and yearning for Jesus' second coming, even as our waiting now takes on a fundamentally new shape because of this first coming. 
This waiting, he goes on to say, changes us, and that change is inevitable. This Christmas, he writes, will change you. You will not be the same afterwards. You will be better for it or the worse. Will you be closer to Christ because of this Christmas or further away? Will your heart be softer to him or more callous? Will more fog lie between your eyes and his face? Or will you see him with greater clarity and savor with him with greater fervor? Will you know and enjoy Jesus more? I began this whole thing by arguing for a dynamic understanding of hell as something other than a flaming torture chamber with, uh, for souls in agony, but whatever the exact specifics of the fate of those who choose to be forever without God, Jesus and the authors of Scripture describe it as misery and despair. That just as there are those who would rather not have God today, there will be many who would rather not have God for eternity, and that this true and total separation from God is what the Bible calls destruction, or the second death, or even weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if human history has anything to say about it, we want this. We were with God in the beginning, and we didn't want Him, and for every attempt by God to bridge the gap between His perfect goodness and peace and our broken, hateful violence, we scrambled over one another in our blind, writhing impulse to destroy those bridges one after another. All of us, all of us were bent and determined on hell, and that's where all of this was headed. Separation from God, destruction, death, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Until Christmas. Christmas pronounces the end of hell, that though we would not allow God to bridge the gap between our horror and His glory, God was so bent on loving us that He dove headlong into our awfulness to drag us out of it. As the Satan extended his dominion over the entire world, rather than partnering with God and bringing goodness to creation, we sidled up next to the Satan to join him in terrorizing creation. And in it all, God announced defiant, if you, my beloved, won't come to me, then I will come to you. And he did. And he came to us in Christmas to defeat the darkness. Again, Fleming Rutledge writes, the meaning of Christmas is that God has entered the lists against the prince of darkness. You will hear this on Christmas Eve. Satan has met his master. These past few weeks of observing Advent together have been, I realize, not the ordinary festive pep of Christmas sermons. Uh, I've said nothing of singing angels or journeying magi yet. To date, there has been no gushing over sweet baby Jesus. Instead, We've talked at length about suffering and death and judgment and human depravity, and now, hell, I am the pastor of Christmas. <laughs> but as much as I adore this season and have as long as I can remember, I am slowly learning to understand it more and more in light of these kinds of things, suffering, death, judgment, depravity, and hell, because when we allow the horrible weight of this darkness to settle over us just for a moment, to come to terms with the brokenness within and without then, and I would argue only then, will we break free of the confining sentimentality of a superficial holiday celebration and experience our hearts erupting in worship before the scandalous manger. As John's gospel beautifully puts it, a light shines in the darkness 
and the darkness has not overcome it. That in the horrible depth of our own wicked depravity, in the reign of the evil one, in a world of suffering and sickness and greed and hate and death, a world full of hell, God said, if you won't come to me, I am coming to you. And though hell awaited with hungry open jaws, God has smashed the serpent's head, shattered his venomous fangs, broke down the black pillars of hell, and he did it all with a baby. One of my uh, favorite creative liberties taken with a Christmas carol is a beautiful additional verse grafted into the first Noel, where the artist sings, In Bethlehem, in swaddling clothes, they found Jesus just as the angel had told, and they were broken by the thought as their young Savior nursed, that God sent a baby to break the curse. Christmas marks the end of hell. And hell is a thing all of us have known in one way or another, an evil we have done or that has been done to us, but a light shines in the darkness and the long winter breaks. God sent a baby to break the curse. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.